Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we uh, study your word this day, as we desire to honor you, will you do um, what only you can do in our lives? Our text has so much to do with commitment to you. Our text has so much to do with commitment to the gospel and to the church. And I pray that you will enable us to hear it with grace and conviction, with encouragement, and with the ways you desire to change our lives so that you might be more and more glorified. Uh, We need you, Lord. So lead us. Lead us to the cross. Lead us to yourself that we might please you. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. What does it mean, you can be seated by the way if you're not, what does it mean for a person to be committed to the church? You know, the answer to that question, if you ask it, varies widely, depending on what culture you come from, depending on who you are, you're going to give a different answer to that question. When I was growing up in a rural Southern Baptist church setting, you all know my hometown had 900 people when I was growing up, right? So, yeah, all that. We lived two miles outside of that town because we didn't want to be so cosmopolitan. So, uh, just so you know, get out of the hustle and bustle. Um, when I was growing up, commitment to the local church meant that you went to the church building on Sunday morning for Sunday school for worship service. You went on Sunday nights for discipleship training and evening worship service. You went on Wednesday night, and if you were real spiritual, you went on Wednesday night for prayer meeting. I don't remember praying much while we were there, but it was still prayer meeting. And likely you would do some sort of outreach during the week. So, you know, you had all those meetings that you would go to. And that took up a lot of time, but that did not always accurately measure whether or not a person was genuinely committed to Christ. Instead, what that measured most often was a person's status in the organization. Now, thinking about the church from that kind of a commitment angle can be a big turnoff to many modern believers, and there's a way that it should be. But, and hear me here, there is something to be said about being committed to the church. Perhaps there is more than mere attendance as a measure of commitment. And by the way, I'll tell you, church attendance is important. It is good to be together with the people of God. So please don't neglect that. But there's more than that. Perhaps God has more to tell us about what it really looks like when a man or woman of God is really, genuinely committed to the glory of God and to the body of Christ. Maybe there's more. And I believe God has much more to say to us about what it means to be committed to the church. And as providence would have it, God has given us a passage on that very topic for us to consider this morning as we, consider, as we continue our look at Paul's letter to the Colossians. The last section that we studied two weeks ago in Colossians, Paul pointed out that he was a minister of the gospel on behalf of the Colossians. And now we're going to look and we're going to see how that ministry is played out in Paul's commitment to the church. And if we're willing, we'll hear five truths about our own call to be committed to the church for the glory of God. So that's what we want to get is those five truths out of here that God would have for us that would tell us about our call to be committed to the church for the glory of God. 
So our first point for you note takers is joyfully suffer for the church. Joyfully suffer for the church. That's found in verse 24. Watch Paul talk and we'll see where we learn it. Paul says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. There's some statements that when you, when you make them as a pastor, you believe they deserve to be responded to with an amen. And I hate when pastors tell you that up front. Christians are weird. See, I knew it would come. I knew it would come. There's really no other way to say it. We think and we act in ways that are different than the way the world thinks and acts. And when we obey the commands of God, we demonstrate to the watching world that there's something more valuable to us than the supposed benefits of not obeying God, right? When we value God's glory above the pleasures of sin, we show the universe that God's glory is a higher pleasure. And when we have joy and hope, even in the middle of painful circumstances, we show the world around us that God and God's promise of the life to come is worth more than comfort and security in this life. The Apostle Paul is in a prison cell, writing to the church at Colossae. My best guess is he's sitting in the city of Rome, awaiting his first trial before Caesar, as we see in the book of Acts, as Acts comes to a close. He's been in custody for a long time. He was arrested in Jerusalem, where a mob was looking like they wanted to beat him to death. There was a scheme launched to have Paul murdered while being transported as a prisoner from one city to another. He was left in jail by rulers who wanted to use him as a political bargaining chip. And when Paul saw that there was no justice for him under the Roman system, he, as a legal Roman citizen, appealed to Caesar, guaranteeing him a trial in Rome before the emperor. Who, by the way, was no friend to Christians. On the way to his trial, Paul experienced a shipwreck and a snake bite before he spent more than two years in Rome awaiting his trial. What does Paul have to say about these experiences? He says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. What? Paul rejoices in his sufferings, and that, my friends, is nuts. That is backward thinking. That is backward living. And it is precisely the kind of thinking and living that Christians do. As Paul considers the fact that he is suffering for the sake of the gospel and for the good of the church, he rejoices, he celebrates, he celebrates his hardships because of the way in which those hardships glorify God and they grow the body of Christ. 
Now, how is Paul suffering for the Colossians' sake? Paul is in prison for preaching the message of Jesus. It was preaching like what Paul did that brought the grace of God to a man named Epaphras, who in turn took the gospel to Colossae. So in a very simple sense, Paul was suffering because he was doing what it took for the Colossians to have heard the gospel in the first place. And talking about his joy and in suffering for the sake of the church, Paul adds a really weird statement here in verse 24. He says, And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. For certain, Paul is not saying that there was anything lacking in the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus' atoning work His suffering on behalf of the people that he would rescue was perfect. Nothing, nothing could be added to the work of Jesus. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe, right? Paul's language in much clearer passages than this one make it plain that nobody can or nobody needs to add anything to complete the saving work of Jesus. And anybody that tells you that you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus plus anything else is missing the biblical boat. But Paul uses an interesting Greek word here when he talks about filling up what was lacking in Christ. Afflictions. That word afflictions is not a Greek word that's used for sacrificial suffering. Instead, it's a word that is often translated as pressure or tribulation. So what many commentators argue for, and I would agree, is that Paul is here pointing out something about this age of the church. These, what the Bible calls the last days, which has been a lot of days. And about the fact that we are the representatives of Christ here on earth. Jesus is not physically standing among us. So the world that wants to persecute Jesus, the world that hates Jesus, can't do so. But for the time being, during this season of tribulation, the devil and the world oppose, instead of Christ personally, they oppose the servants of Christ because of their hatred of the Son of God. And that's how Paul and other Christians may fill up the afflictions that Christ cannot suffer. So when we suffer for Jesus, we fill up those afflictions too. Listen to some of the other ways Paul talks about his and our sufferings as part of Christ's sufferings. In 2 Corinthians 1.5, he says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Or in Galatians 6.17, Paul Paul says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Even as we sang and another verse of scripture tells us, we desire to know Christ in the fellowship of his suffering. What do we do with concepts like this, right? I mean, this is a weird feeling. Listen. We willingly, even joyfully, prepare ourselves to suffer hardships for the glory of God and for the good of the church. That's what we do. There is, listen to me, a joy in suffering for the gospel because, one, as we suffer, as we go through hardships, as we do it especially for the sake of the gospel, but as we do it with joy, we strengthen the resolve of other Christians who need to be reminded that Jesus is worth suffering for. 
We want to be the kinds of people who allow our lives to encourage the church and to demonstrate that God and the rewards of eternal life to come are worth far more than our experience in the here and now. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, where he says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you guys know That when Jesus suffered the cross, he had his eyes set on the glory of God and on joy. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Listen to how this ties this together for us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, people who have suffered for the sake of the gospel already, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, listen to this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross. Why? For the joy set before him. And Jesus, like all the other witnesses to the faith who have suffered before us, encourages us to press on even through suffering with the same kind of joy. We want that joy. The world, Christians, is going to oppose us. And we will, if we are faithful to Jesus Christ, we will suffer for his name. And when we do so, God promises us an eternal joy that will so far outweigh our present sufferings that they will look like light and momentary afflictions when compared to an eternal weight of glory. So our sufferings with hope and our sufferings with joy help us to honor God on earth and they help us to encourage the church as we show the church our hope in the magnificence of Christ. And so being committed to the church means that we willingly and joyfully suffer for the sake of the church and for the Savior who died on her behalf. Let me ask you, are you committed to the church in this way? Are you committed to the church in this way? Are you willing to give up your comfort for the good of the church? Are you willing to let yourself go through hardship and hard circumstances for the glory of God? Are you willing to walk through hardships for the church? Paul was. Jesus was. And God tells you and me, this is our role to play too. Joyfully suffer for the good of the church. And though I didn't plan to do it, you know what, guys? The suffering for the good of the church isn't always persecution related. Paul's talking persecution. But guys... You know believers who hurt. And as they hurt with hope 
they magnify Christ. And they suffer for our good too. I know a lady from back in Columbia, Illinois, who has been battling cancer. And her name's Wanda. And you know what she's done? She has battled with joy. And I've watched her be strong. And I've watched her keep this gloriously sweet attitude. And I've prayed with her in a hospital room that her suffering, that the way she showed joy in her suffering would magnify Christ with doctors and nurses who see her and wonder how in the world she could have hope in the middle of that pain. And you know what? God does it. I've seen it with Murray. I see it with Emmanuel and Rena. And I could probably name a hundred more. Church, suffer with hope and joy for the glory of the gospel, for the good of the church. Second point. Accept, it's an A, accept, not accept. Accept your ministry in the church from God. Accept your ministry in the church from God. Let's keep going with what Paul writes. Look at the beginning of verse 25. After he talks about rejoicing in his suffering for their sake, Paul says about the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So Paul declares himself to be a minister of the church. Paul's life was about serving the church. God gave Paul that job, making Paul a steward, a caretaker of the church under the authority of Jesus. And that job of Paul's was a job for the good of people like the Colossians. And if you know Paul's story, you know God radically saved Paul when he had formerly been a persecutor of the church. Paul hated Christians. He put them in jail. He watched while they were killed. But God saved Paul, and then he gave Paul the job of spreading the gospel and especially taking it to the Gentiles in the world. That that, that was totally backwards to Paul, let me tell you. And now here, as Paul writes to the Colossians, we see that Paul was called upon by God to write down words of Holy Scripture that still encourage Christians all over the world as they communicate the clear revelation of God And I want to make just a quick point of application here for us. we got to consider this. Paul was given a ministry by God. Paul was given a task and a life to live by God for the sake of the church, for the good of the church. And that ministry that Paul did was a central part of his life and his existence from the moment he was saved until the moment he gave up his life. So let me say this to you very clearly, Christian, God has given to you a ministry for the good of the church that should be a central part of your existence. The Bible is clear that every person who comes to faith in Christ receives from God a spiritual gift, perhaps more than one. And that is for the good of the church. You have never once been given a spiritual gift that was not intended by God to be for the good of the whole church and not just yourself. In Romans 12, verses 4 to 8, God says this, For as in one body we have many members, 
and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if, in, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. God gifts us believers in different ways at different times for different tasks in the church. And you, if you are a believer in Christ, if you have been saved by God, you are gifted by God. And God intends that those gifts that you have be used for the good of the church. Now, I do not believe that the list that I just read to you, those seven gifts, is an exhaustive list of all the possible giftings out there. But what I do believe is that the list is intended to show us that in the church, God shapes us differently. God shapes us uniquely. And those different shapes are intended by God to be helpful for the building up of the church. So think about it. There are some people that they are gifted teachers. They look at a passage of scripture. They understand it easily. They communicate it clearly to others. And there's no call for pride in that. It's just a gift from God that God gave them for the good of the church. Other people have hearts that they just light up and glow when they get to do things that help others. That is a gift. Some people are outstanding at helping us see just, man, what's the next step? What do I do next to grow stronger in the faith? That is a gift from God. Some people love to help and to care for hurting people or to give to those in need. These are gifts given to them by God. The point is, God made you. And if you're a Christian, God has gifted you with an intent that you use the way he's gifted you for the good of the church. Now, it may or may not be preaching. For some of you men here, the idea of doing what I'm doing right now is not something that would bring you joy. That's okay. God didn't call us all to do this. There are things, though, that you can do that I could never do. And that's the beauty of God putting us together as a body. Maybe God shaped you to, to be more of a helper, more of someone who lends a help, a helping hand. Maybe it's someone who really does care for hurting. It may be that God gifted you to encourage others toward growth. It may be that God has shaped you as the kind of person that you just open up your home and you welcome people into a safe and loving place. It might be any number of things that God may have done in your life. But know this. God has gifted you and it is your job for the glory of Christ to use your gifts for the good of the church. Now, let's get real technical. How do you find out what your gifts are? Now, I know pastors who right now would give you a handout of a, of a little like 35 question checklist that when you're done, you can identify your gifts. Hate those tests. Hate them. You want to know how to find out what your gifts are? This is hard. So this is big and technical. You ready? Serve. Just do something for heaven's sake. Do it in the church. Help. Try things. Just, just try to do things that we do as a body. Talk to other believers. 
Especially the elders, by the way. Think about and ask, what is it that I'm good at? What is it you do that helps others? What is it that is hard for some people to do, but comes naturally to you, especially as it comes to spiritual life? What type of service or work in the church do you actually enjoy doing? What kind of helping in in the church do you do that other people say, man, that is a blessing? If you put those things together and you keep trying stuff, you're going to figure out the gifting and the ministry that God has prepared for you. And let me just say this to you, again, not in my notes, but just something worthy of note. You're not going to hate it. There are going to be ways that you serve you just love doing. As ridiculous as it may seem to some of you, I actually like what I'm doing right now. This is fun. Because I love opening God's Word to God's people. Now, I'm not the best at it. There are people that are better. There are guys that are a ton smarter. And I'm going to mess things up from time to time. Hopefully it's not that often, but you never know. But you know what? I knew that this was a gifting and a calling because I tried it. And it came easily. And by the grace of God, others were blessed by it. What do you do that's like that? Maybe it's, you're just the kind of person that, again, you care, you serve. I, I know some of you, I could name some of your gifts after only knowing you for a couple months. We've got a couple deacons here that are, that are the deakiest deacons you're ever going to find. <laughs> they just serve and they, I mean, they're exactly right in what they're doing. They just do what they're shaped to do. And they love it. That's glorious. You know, again... Go to family camp and just watch Russ and, Russ and Sally cook for us. Aren't they just happy? And there's bacon? <laughs> I don't know if bacon's a spiritual gift, but it's close. It's not an Old Testament spiritual gift, but you know. <laughs> praise God for the New Testament, right? So, but, I mean, but what they do when they do that, they love it. They love it. And I, I, I could tell you others, but I would embarrass more people than I already have. So... Serve. Accept that you have a ministry in the church from God. If you're here, if you're part of this church, you have a job to do here. Find it. And if you don't know what it is, talk to me and we'll we'll pray about it and think about it together, okay? Find a way to make your life about strengthening the church around you. Third point. Proclaim the gospel from God's word in the church. Proclaim the gospel from God's word in the church. Verses 25 to 27, again right in the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, what was Paul's ministry in the church? It involved the full communication of the Word of God and the message of God. Now, keep that full word in in mind, right? We see another nod to fullness or completeness. This is going to happen in Colossians a lot. There seem to have been false teachers in and around Colossae who tried to make themselves look more spiritual than others by claiming to have secrets to the fullness of spiritual life. 
Paul lets us know, and this is so great, that Paul's job as a minister for the church is to communicate to everyone the fullness of the word of God. So that means that what Paul does keeps you from needing somebody to give you the secret fullness. Paul says his message is a mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but which now has been revealed. Now, to understand that, you need to understand the Bible's story. Because the Bible is a flowing story of a particular promise from God that had to be fulfilled. And God chose to fulfill that promise in a way that people didn't originally expect. So, let's preach the whole Bible real quick. The Bible begins with God, perfect and loving, who chose to create the universe in order to display His glory. God made people in His image the most prominent way for the universe to see God's greatness. By the way, how does it make you feel to think that you are the most prominent way for God to reveal His greatness? That's terrifying is what that is. But the people that God made did not choose to follow God. Instead, deceived by the devil and led astray by their own desires, they rebelled against God. All of us have done the same thing. They tried to throw off God's rule. They tried to be their own masters. And they wanted to be the boss of themselves. And God, at that very point, in the very beginning, could have destroyed his creation. He could have started over. But God had a bigger plan. He hinted toward that plan ever since the first, you know, right after the first sin, but he had it from before the beginning. God made it plain that he was going to send somebody into the world who was going to crush the head of the devil and to be part of making things right between God and the people he made. And what we need to know, what you need to know, is that all of the Old Testament of the Bible, so if you look at a Bible, that whole, you know what, three quarters of it at the beginning, all of that is God repeatedly promising and promising and promising to send this one who would rescue his children. And God working it out. That's what the Old Testament is, is God promising and then working out that promise so that promise would be fulfilled. Like Abraham, starting in Genesis, what? We see him first in 11, and then we get a story in 12, right? Abraham was a man God chose to help carry the promise. And God said it was going to be through Abraham's family that the rescuer that he's been promising would come. And then God carried the promise through Abraham's son Isaac and through Isaac's son Jacob. And Jacob was the founder of the nation of Israel. And God promised that the rescuer that he's been promising was going to come to the nation of Israel. And at multiple places through all of the Old Testament, it looked like Israel was going to follow apart or rebel against God or be wiped out by people who hated the nation. But God always preserved that nation in one form or another and he made sure that he could always continue to fulfill his promise of a rescuer to come. And the prophets of the Old Testament kept reminding the people again and again and again that God's promised rescuer was going to come and that he was going to rescue and rule over God's people. And the mystery that Paul points out here in Colossians comes out of that whole Old Testament story that promised what God was going to do, but somehow didn't tell us every detail. You see, because part of the mystery, 
part of the mystery is the fact that God's promise of a rescuer was not going to start out with some big, mighty, powerful, earthly king coming to arise and rule Israel and overthrow all the other governments of the world and, and live and rule the world forever. That wasn't how the promise was going to ultimately, originally be fulfilled. No, God's promised rescuer was coming to earth first to die as a sacrifice for the sins of every single person God would ever forgive. God's rescuer would die and rise from the grave and live forever. The mystery, the mystery is in that. Because the people didn't all see that coming. And the mystery is that the rescuer was going to replace the sacrificial system of the Old Testament by fulfilling it and making it obsolete. And also the mystery is that the rescuer is not going to be for the Jewish nation alone. A lot of people thought, man, he must be just for us. He's just going to make us important. Everybody else is going to be under us. But God said, no, that's not what I'm doing. The promised one is not only going to love and rescue Israel. No, the rescuer is going to bring people from all nations into God's chosen family. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, God's rescuer can rescue you. That was a mystery that they didn't understand in the Old Testament. And to add more to the mystery, the rescuer is then going to make his home in the hearts of the people he rescues. While, while by the way, God's rescuer is going to return to earth in the flesh and rule the world as a king forever. That's coming. God's promised rescuer is alive in heaven in the presence of the Father right now and He lives right now because of the promised Holy Spirit in the lives of every single forgiven child of God. The riches of the glory of the mystery is that God sent Jesus to be the promised rescuer. Jesus is God in the flesh, not merely a man. Jesus is going to return to this earth as king. But Jesus is also the only way that any of us could ever be forgiven by God. And Jesus is willing to forgive everybody who turns from their sin and turns to him in faith. And Jesus lives in the lives of everyone who comes to him because he places his Holy Spirit in them. The rescuing work of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that is our hope of glory. That is our hope for our souls forever. And for anybody who would ever believe in Him, no matter where we came from, we have hope because this mystery is revealed in the person and work of Jesus. That's pretty good, isn't it? By the way, that's the whole Bible. You think if I could do the whole Bible that fast, these sermons would be shorter. (laughs) What do we do? What do we do with that mystery now revealed? Listen to me. If you have not been rescued by Jesus, or if you're not sure that you've been rescued by Jesus and forgiven of your sins, the response for you has to here be that you understand you need to be rescued. You have rebelled against God just like I've rebelled against God. You need someone to rescue you because you cannot rescue yourself and Jesus came to do it. You 
need to decide that you would rather follow God than oppose God. You need to surrender your life to God and believe that Jesus died to pay for your sins, that he rose from the dead and that he's going to come back and rule again. And ask Jesus, please, Jesus, make me into a child of God and help me follow you. And if you genuinely come to Jesus in that that kind of faith, turning your life over to him, no matter who you've ever been, God promises you forgiveness and life with him forever. You want to know more about that? Come talk to me after this is all said and done. But for the rest of you here who have been forgiven by Jesus and you know it, proclaim the gospel from the word of God in the church. See, Paul talked about the word of God that he was able to write and proclaim the fullness, right? Here's the fullness, and it's supposed, it's for the church. We are to proclaim the truth of this mystery to each other. We are supposed to remind each other of the promise of God fulfilled in Jesus. We are to submit each other, ourselves to the scripture as we walk together. We are, let me say that better because I don't think I said that well. We are to submit ourselves to scripture, and we're supposed to proclaim the truth revealed in the written word of God to one another. We are supposed to encourage each other. We're supposed to comfort each other. We're supposed to challenge each other with the good news of Jesus and the perfect word of God. So Christians, let's be people that speak scripture and speak gospel into each other's lives. Fourth point, make disciples in the church. Verse 28 Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul lets us know we proclaim Jesus to each other for a purpose. Why do we do that? I just said we warn and teach each other with wisdom in order to present each other mature in Christ. So as the Great Commission says, our job is to make disciples. And guess what, y'all? We make disciples right here with each other besides making disciples in the world. We do both. In proclaiming the truth of Christ, what do we do? We warn each other and teach each other. Those two terms are really two sides of the same coin, sort of a negative and a positive, right? Warning. Uh, have you guys ever heard somebody talk about being committed to nuthetic counseling? That word for warn there is the Greek word that where nuthetic comes from. It, 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 and it means to admonish. We warn each other. We, we caution each other against doing things that are wrong. If you see a fellow Christian making bad decisions or developing bad habits, you warn them. You care enough to say, hey, I think you need to watch this. When you hear fellow believers expressing unbiblical thoughts, you help correct them. Now, you never do this with harshness. You never do this with cruelty. You never do this with arrogance. You don't belittle people when you correct them. And oh, I've seen some evidence of that this week. Not not among you, nobody here, but I've just been reminded of how rough some Christians can be and how full of themselves they can be when they think they're right. Don't do that. But do warn. Do caution. You do it with wisdom and gentleness for the glory of God and the good of the church. And you also teach, this is sort of the positive side, right? If, 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 if warning is one side, instructing and teaching is the other side of the corn. We communicate truth so that we help each other know Christ better and follow God's word more faithfully. I mean, look, there's stuff that I know that you need to know. There's stuff you know that I need to know. We need to teach each other. And by the way, do not be an unteachable person, please, Christians. None of you know enough doctrine. 
I don't. So we need to be teaching. And by the way, none of us know enough practical ways to live out that doctrine. So let's be sure that we're teachable. The whole point of all of this is that why? Why do we do this? Because we want to present one another to Christ as mature believers. We work together to help make each other into disciples of Jesus. We sacrifice the ease of living lives that are self-focused. We sacrifice the ease of never having to rub up against somebody else. We sacrifice that for the hard work of getting into each other's lives so that we can present a better church to God for God's glory. Look around you. Look at, look at the folks in the room. If you're part of this church, it's your job, look at the people, even the funny looking ones, and say and think to yourself, my job in the church is to help present that person, those people I'm looking at, I want to present them as a better gift to God than they even are now. And I want them to help shape me so that I will be a better gift to God than I am now. Now, you can't do that if you're not ready to be committed to the church. If you really want to honor God by helping others be disciples of Christ, you're going to do it in the church. The church is the vehicle through which God intends to grow us into disciples as we study God's word together and encourage each other and confront each other and forgive each other and help each other. We do that and we make disciples for the glory of God. It happens as we live life together. Which, by the way, that's what biblical fellowship is. Life together in Christ. So even now, ask God, God, how would you have me show my commitment to the church? How would you have me join you in the making of disciples? And let's do the last point. And this is fast, so if you're concerned, it's going to be okay. Fifth point. <laughs> Work hard in God's strength for the church. Verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So we're wrapping up here. And that verse is, can you hear the repetition in it? I toil, I struggle with all his energy that he works powerfully. We can summarize this. Paul works hard. There's no laziness in, in what we know about the life of Paul, right? He works hard. He agonizes. He works hard with all the energy that God, give, God gives him. He, he, he works hard for the glory of God. He works hard for the good of the church. And that's what God calls you and me to do as well. To work hard for the glory of God and the good of the church. And we don't have to unpack any more of this. We just have to know that God calls you, if you are a believer, to be committed to the church. He calls you to joyfully suffer for the church. He calls you to accept your ministry in the church for His glory. He calls you to proclaim the gospel from His word in the church. He calls you to make disciples of others in the church. And none of us will do these things if we're not willing to work hard in God's strength for the church. God gives the strength. God accomplishes the work. But we are commanded by Him to work and to do the things He's called us to in order to demonstrate His glory here on earth. So as we close, can I ask you Christians, are you committed to the church for the glory of God? What would it look like for you to better be committed 
to the church. Where do you need to grow? Is God calling you to be willing to suffer? Is God calling you to give up more of your comforts for His glory? Is God calling you to find out how He has gifted you and to accept your ministry in the church? Is God calling you to know and love the gospel better so you can proclaim it right here in the church and you can proclaim it out in the world? Is God calling you to open your life more to others in the church and to get further into each other's lives so you can help in the process of making disciples for the glory of Christ? Is God just telling you He wants you to work hard in His power to accomplish His will for His glory? Whatever He's calling you to, He's going to empower you to obey. So today, from the example of Paul, Because of the mystery of the gospel, for the glory of God, I charge you, Christians, be committed to the church. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, there's so much here. And my prayer, Lord... When I do a sermon like this, always comes back to I really do want you to be glorified. I really do want you to magnify your name. And it's so easy when we see these practical things to become legalistic or harsh. I don't want us to be, feel that way. Don't, don't let people, Lord, just leave here feeling beaten down. But if there's conviction, Lord, you by your spirit, just bring that to bear. I pray. There may be people who need to express a desire to unite with the church. Help them do that. There may be people who need to express a desire to be baptized and follow your commands. There may be people who just need to become better friends to the rest of the body. I I don't know, Lord. But would you do what only you can do here? And let this be a gospel thing. Let this be a joy thing for your glory because you give us great joy in your glory. God, be magnified. And if anyone here doesn't know you, would you rescue their souls? Help us, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.